Welcome to The Free Will Show, a podcast that provides a beginner-friendly introduction to free will while also exploring cutting-edge developments on the topic. I'm Taylor Sear. And I'm Matt Flummer. In this episode, we talk with philosopher Christian List about a different way of responding to a challenge to free will from physics. Even if determinism is true at the level of physics, free will might still be possible at the higher and independent level of agency. Thanks for listening. I'm happy to introduce Christian List, professor of philosophy and decision theory at Ludwig Maximilian University of Munich. Christian's work has explored the nature of decision-making, both individual and collective, and he's written several articles and recently a book focusing on free will. The book is called Why Free Will is Real, and it was published in 2019 by Harvard University Press. The book is well-written, and you don't need a PhD in philosophy to understand the arguments. And since many of our questions... Uh, we'll ask about aspects of this book. If this interview piques your interest, we'd encourage listeners to check out the book. Well, thanks so much for joining us, Christian. Welcome to the show. Can you start by telling us a bit about yourself, your work, and how you came to be interested in working on free will? Yeah, so hi. Thanks very much for having me on your um, show. It's uh, uh, great to be on the program today. Um, yeah, so my background, um, well, I grew up in a, a small town in rural Germany, and uh, then I went to um, Oxford to study mathematics and philosophy um, and uh, developed an interest uh, not just in theoretical philosophy, but also in uh, more practical areas of philosophy, especially political philosophy. And that motivated me to um, go on to do a PhD in political science or, or politics. And I specialized um, in the area of social choice theory. So basically the formal study of um, collective decision procedures, collective decision mechanisms. Um, and that then also became one of my main areas of specialization for a very long time. So I started out my um career uh, working in a political science department at the London School of Economics and teaching initially primarily within political science and political theory. Mm. But then over the years, I found myself uh, getting drawn more and more back into philosophy. Um, And uh, so step by step, um, more and more of my work um, ended up focusing on more theoretical questions in philosophy again. Um, And I mean, over the course of my career, I've done a lot of work on all sorts of questions uh, related to decision-making, both uh, decision-making in individuals and also in in groups. Um, And I think anyone who studies decision-making will at some point uh, face the question of uh, free will. I mean, after all, it seems um, on the face of it, uh, you know, some notion of... um, free will or freedom of choice is implicit uh, in uh, conventional the conventional understanding of, of decision-making. And I actually also think it's implicit in, um, um, you know, much of decision theory in its contemporary form, although this is perhaps an assumption that is not so uh, clearly acknowledged by, by most or by many practitioners of decision theory. And so all of this was... was um, a background for my interest in free will. And initially it was um, a bit of a hobby interest that I pursued, but then I also developed a line of joint uh, work on mental causation with um, with my uh, friend, the late Peter Menzies, and we mm-hmm. wrote uh, several articles uh, together on issues related to, to mental causation and various uh, pieces came together. And, uh, you know, at, at one point um, I, I felt that... Um, 
I had a sort of picture of free will in my mind that I wanted to defend. And so that's uh, how I ended up uh, in this in this current place. Yeah, cool. So one of the, the questions we usually start out with when we have an interview is about terminology. So what do you take free will to involve? Yes. Um, so, uh, of course, from a uh, very um, conventional day-to-day perspective, a free will is simply the ability to choose and uh, control our own actions. Um, but, you know, slightly more precisely, um, I think um, free will is a three-part capacity. So it involves or requires, first of all, intentional agency, um, only systems or intention uh, entities that are intentional agents um, are even candidates for having free will. So I've got a water bottle in front of me. That's uh, it's clearly not an intentional agent, yeah. and it's not mm-hmm. even a candidate for having free will. Uh, secondly, um, there is um, uh, uh, the capacity for choice between alternative possibilities, or for short alternative possibilities. I take that also to be an important requirement uh, of uh, free will. Uh, and then finally, um, uh, some form of causal control over our um, actions mm-hmm. um, or mental causation, uh, that also, um, uh, uh, for me, is a key requirement uh, for free will. Now, some people um, define free will perhaps in somewhat less demanding ways. So uh, many free will compatibilists um, omit the alternative possibilities requirement from yeah. this list. Um, but um, I, I think that um, this would amount to a somewhat watered-down notion of, of free will. So intuitively, at least, uh, I am very much with the libertarians who think that um, choice between alternative possibilities is really an essential prerequisite for free will. And that's why um, you know my list of uh, requirements for free will is, is a little bit more demanding than the standard compatibilist one. So in, yeah. in short, intentional agency, alternative possibilities, and uh, causal control are the three requirements for free will. Nice, thanks. In your book, you address three scientifically motivated challenges for free will, the challenge from radical materialism, the challenge from determinism, and the challenge from epiphenomenalism. We'll probably focus more on the challenge from determinism than the others, but could you briefly describe each of the three challenges for us? Yes. So, um, as I mentioned, I I think that there are these three um, uh, requirements for free will. And um, now each of these challenges targets one of the three requirements and basically suggests that the the relevant uh, property or condition uh, is just not compatible with a scientific worldview or not supported by a scientific worldview. So let's begin with a challenge from radical materialism. Um, I I suggest that free will requires intentional agency. Um, uh, According to the challenge from radical materialism, um, uh, intentional agency um, uh, is an old-fashioned folk notion uh, left over from... um, uh, earlier days in which we didn't really have sophisticated neuroscience. And uh, on this picture, um, the understanding of um, humans as intentional agents uh, will be uh, 
replaced by a more reductionistic uh, neuroscientific understanding of humans or biological understanding of humans uh, essentially as biophysical machines. Uh, and on such an understanding of um, humans, we wouldn't need to um, ever use intentional notions. We wouldn't need to ascribe intentional uh, states to agents. We wouldn't even make use of the whole paradigm of intentional explanation, but we do everything um, at a sub-intentional um, physical or neuros, uh, neuroscientific uh, level. And uh, then uh, it would seem that um, the whole notion of intentional agency drops out of the picture. Um, and uh, um, the, the, the idea that humans are intentional agents uh, as opposed to, you know, mere biophysical systems would no longer seem to be supported by um, such a such a worldview. I mean, that's the kind of yeah. um, radical materialistic picture that um, you find in the work of um, neurophilosophers such as uh, Patricia and Paul Churchland, yeah. um, for instance. Uh, it's also known under the name of... Um, for instance, eliminativist materialism, mm -hmm. um, uh, and so it's it's clear if you that if you subscribe to that uh, general approach, um, then I mean you'd uh, not just deny intentional agency as a sort of phenomenon in a, in a um, scientific uh, worldview, but you then also um, have to deny. Um, free will, at least on the understanding of free will that uh, I, I began with. So that's the challenge from radical materialism. The challenge from determinism is the one that's uh, been uh, uh, discussed uh, the most in the philosophical literature. Um, uh, this is simply um, the point that um, if the uh, physical uh, universe is deterministic uh, so that um, the initial conditions under the laws of nature um, completely fix uh, the entire trajectory of subsequent physical states of the universe, then uh, it seems that uh, there is no room for a choice between alternative possibilities in such a universe. Uh, and then if alternative possibilities are required for free will, uh, there'd be no room for, for free will. Um, this challenge was made, uh, was famously uh, uh, developed in a sophisticated way, for instance, in Peter Van Inwagen's consequence argument, yeah. um, and it's been much discussed. Um, and then uh, finally, the challenge from epiphenomenalism uh, targets uh, the causal control or mental causation requirement for free will. Um, so um, here, um, the, the problem is, uh, is simply that... Um, uh, if we uh, take seriously something like the um, causal exclusion argument uh, that has been carefully uh, developed by scholars uh, such as Jaguan Kim, mm -hmm. uh, then it seems that um, uh, there is no room um, for genuine mental causation in a physical universe unless um, you're willing to identify um, mental states with underlying physical brain states. Um, but if we have independent good reasons to think that mental states, uh, while perhaps supervenient on physical brain states, are nonetheless distinct from those physical uh, brain states, uh, then this kind of argument uh, would basically knock out the causal efficacy of mental states. And so mental states would um, be a mere epiphenomenon. They would... Mm -hmm. uh, 
let's say the mental states, for instance, the intentional states of, of, of an agent, they would be byproducts of various underlying physical processes. These underlying physical processes would also be causally responsible for the various re resulting actions or behaviors. Um, but the mental states, uh, Uh, the intentions to which we normally attribute the resulting actions, uh, they, they wouldn't really do any causal work. And so once again, um, you know, if you think that some form of genuine causal control that the agent has over the resulting actions or mental causation is needed for free will, then this kind of argument uh, would, would undermine um, free will. There are also neuroscientific versions of this kind of challenge, uh, which you find in the Libet experiments, uh, Uh, for instance, where, again, the, the claim is that the um, conscious intentions to um, perform certain actions are allegedly just um, byproducts or epiphenomena, but not really the causal source. And much has been written about uh, these, and I, I mean, I won't rehearse the, the arguments yeah. again. But these, I think, are three um, really key scientifically motivated challenges uh, for free will, That, that we find in the recent debate. Yeah, cool. Well, key to your responses and each, to each of these challenges for free will is the idea that there's different levels of description of reality. So there's an important difference, you say, between lower level description at the level of physics and higher level description at the level of agency. So could you explain these different levels and why you take free will to be a higher level phenomenon? Yes, yeah, so... Maybe I should begin with the notion of levels. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, we use many different uh, sciences to uh, make sense of different phenomena in the world. And these sciences all have somewhat different domains of inquiry. And crucially, they also use different concepts and categories in their explanations. Um, let's say explanations in fundamental physics, um, You know, refer to particles, fields, and forces. Explanations uh, in um, chemistry invoke uh, various, uh, you know, chemical concepts and notions. In biology, you know, we've got cells and organisms and ecosystems. Uh, and uh, then in psychology or in the social sciences, um, we uh, have the entire intentional idiom. We make use of intentional explanations and not, uh, not just causal ones, again, employing a whole different range of, of concepts and, and, and categories. So that's, I think, just a mm -hmm. fact about scientific practice. And um, um, now uh, I think it's uh, then useful to um, distinguish between different phenomena and also between different facts and properties in the world based on the level of description that we employ to make sense of those um, phenomena or facts or, or properties. And so um, a physical level fact, um, for instance, at the level of fundamental physics, uh, is one um, which we can refer to using the concepts and categories of fundamental physics. Um, a biological level fact is one that we refer to using the concepts and categories of biology and so on. So let's say a psychological level fact or a psychological level property is one that we refer to using the concepts and categories of, of psychology. Um, now, um, I mean, reductionists might think that, uh, well, um, you know, whenever we employ um, higher level concepts and categories, uh, this is really just a shorthand for something that we could equally say 
in, for instance, fundamental physical terms, maybe it'd be more complicated, but, um, but that's a sort of near uh, practical matter. But I think that there are some very powerful arguments um, for the, um, at least in practice, if not in principle, irreducibility of um, various higher level descriptions and higher level explanations to lower level ones. Um, and uh, now, if, if we accept this and if, if we um, are convinced by those kinds of arguments uh, for a you know, non-reductive uh, picture uh, of, of the world where there, there are perhaps supervenience relations between different levels but not relations of reducibility, um, then I think it makes sense to um, really take uh, the leveled nature of the world you know, quite seriously and quite literally as, as an important feature of the uh, reality that we find ourselves in. Um, and crucially for me, and that's something that I've defended elsewhere, in, especially in a, in a paper on levels, uh, uh, descriptive, explanatory, and ontological, um, uh, I think that... Um, um, it, Levels are not merely a descriptive phenomenon that has to do with the nature of our descriptions and the nature of our explanations, but rather, um, I think um, the fact that we use these different levels of description, different levels of explanation is sort of indicative of a particular level structure uh, of the world itself, and that therefore um, a leveled ontology uh, is also uh, uh, is also philosophically quite um, defensible. Okay, so that's the sort of general uh, point about uh, levels. Mm -hmm. um, and um, now, uh, if you consider different phenomena that we might want to study, it becomes evident uh, that you know, let's say, if you want to talk about the double slit experiment in quantum mechanics, then um, it's best to use um, the concepts and categories of quantum mechanics to to make sense of all of this. But if we want to speak about um, some phenomena in ecology, for instance, uh, then it's uh, not at all clear that we'd want to use. Um, the descriptions of fundamental physics to make sense of it, but rather we'd use the appropriate um, higher-level descriptions from biology or um, ecology. And now when we turn to um, phenomena to do with human psychology, so for instance the phenomenon of um, uh, intentional agency in, in humans, um, it's uh, evident that we need to make use of psychological concepts and categories where we can refer, for instance, to intentions, uh, to cognition, to various um, psychological processes in order to make sense of, of all of this. Um, and um, fundamental physics or even the sort of neuroscience that understands the brain primarily as a bio um, physical system would not be quite appropriate for this. I mean, that might be appropriate for making sense of some of the biological or phys physical machinery that uh, the human body uses to implement or instantiate this phenomenon of intentional agency, but that's not quite the same as um, uh, accounting for the phenomenon of intentional agency itself. So intentional agency 
therefore I suggest is very much a higher level phenomenon, a psychological level uh, phenomenon, which requires the use of psychological descriptions. Um, and uh, insofar as um, free will uh, and choice uh, and causal control and, uh, and uh, indeed also something like rational decision-making, uh, insofar as these are all um, uh, things that uh, take place at the level of intentional agency rather than at the level of physical machines, uh, uh, it's therefore entirely appropriate to say that free will is also a higher level um, phenomenon. Um, We'd also not ask, for instance, uh, whether a purely physical system understood in physical level terms has beliefs, desires, and intentions. Uh, uh, we ask whether an intentional agent understood in, mm -hmm. uh, in psychological terms has beliefs, desires, and intentions. And so, so likewise, um, um, uh, it's really the intentional agent uh, uh, who is the um, potential bearer of free will qua intentional agent and not the underlying um, body qua physical system. I mean, the underlying body qua physical system uh, will instantiate uh, the intentional agent via a complicated uh, you know, psychological mechanism that leads to the emergence of intentional agency as a high-level phenomenon. And it's, it's, of course, you know, super exciting that this is possible and something that uh, you know, we need to study and, and understand. Um, uh, but the property of free will really pertains to the intentional agent rather than uh, any underlying physical system. And so that's the sense in which I think free will is a higher-level phenomenon. Nice. Suppose that the physicists and cosmologists were to discover that our world is deterministic in the sense that determinism obtains at the level of physics. You agree that at that lower level of description, determinism precludes alternative possibilities, yet you think that free will requires alternative possibilities. So how could we have free will if determinism is true? Yes. Um, so one key point um, to note here is that the distinction between determinism and indeterminism itself, I think, is best understood as a level-specific distinction. So um, my claim is that it doesn't make that much sense um, to ask, is the world deterministic or indeterministic um, simpliciter? That question, strictly speaking, is not fully well-defined, fully well-specified as yet. For the question to become fully well specified, we need to be clear about um, the level at which um, uh, we are referring to the world mm -hmm. here. Are we describing the world um, at a fundamental physical level? Are we describing um, the world at um, uh, some more macroscopic level? Um, for instance, the level associated with some special science and, and so on. Now, um, um, even if a system um, is deterministic uh, at a lower level, um, when, for instance, the system's state space is understood in a very, very fine-grained uh, way, um, uh, it can still be the case that once you re-describe the system at a higher level, um, at which um, the higher-level state space of the system becomes more coarse-grained due to supervenience and multiple realizability, 
the resulting higher level system displays indeterministic um, dynamics. Um, so here you'd have um, a kind of, I mean, metaphorically speaking, a kind of phase transition from deterministic lower level dynamics to indeterministic higher level dynamics um, as a um, byproduct of coarse graining or coarser redescription of, um, of, of the world. Uh, in fact, I should note that the um, reverse is also possible. So you could have a system that displays indeterministic lower level dynamics uh, and at the same time deterministic higher level dynamics. So, um, so the, the bottom line here is um, uh, deterministic dynamics at one particular level, whether lower or higher, does not uh, imply deterministic dynamics at, at, at other levels. So even a sort of leveled uh, hierarchy in which uh, of systems in which you've got um, deterministic dynamics at even-numbered levels and indeterministic dynamics at odd-numbered levels is actually a completely coherent possibility, albeit perhaps a somewhat uh, you know far-fetched one of a thought experiment. In fact, um, my colleague Markus Pivato and I have a technical result to this effect in a uh, 2015 film review paper um, on on emergent chance uh, on on precisely this, uh, this 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 point. Now, if we accept that the distinction between determinism and indeterminism is a level specific distinction, then this opens the door uh, to um, the possibility that you could have deterministic dynamics um, in fundamental physics. Um, and you could have indeterministic dynamics at the level of, of agency, at the level of um, psychology. And um, earlier on, I emphasized that we should think of free will as a higher level um, property. And we mm -hmm. should also think of the three prerequisites for free will, intentional agency, alternative possibilities, and causal control as, as higher level um, properties. And uh, so therefore... Um, the notion of alternative possibilities that we're looking for when we're trying to defend free will is a higher level notion of alternative possibilities. It's alternative possibilities at the level of agency, alternative choice possibilities for an agent, qua agent that matter, not alternative microphysical trajectories of a physical system, qua, qua physical system. Um, and so what we need for free will is what I call agential level indeterminism uh, rather than physical level indeterminism. And um, at least in principle, as I've just argued, um, uh, agential level indeterminism can coexist with physical level determinism. I mean, again, the devil is in the detail. Yeah. Um, much would then depend on exactly uh, what the nature of the um, many-to-one supervenience relation is that takes from physical states to agential states. Um, uh, but um, insofar as um, our best theories of agency, I think, support uh, a picture of agency uh, in which there is agential level indeterminism where agents uh, um, are confronted with genuine choice nodes or branching points in their agential histories, I actually think uh, that... Um, uh, we've uh, not just got this compatibility result here based on the level-specific nature of the determinism-indeterminism distinction, but we've also got independent support 
for um, agential indeterminism from um, some of our best special sciences that deal with the phenomenon of agency. And so that's the sense in which I think we can have free will, even if um, physical level de determinism is, is true. Hmm. What we cannot have is free will uh, in the presence of agential level determinism. So should we ever get um, um, an, a, a radically different theory of psychology Uh, uh, which entails that uh, even at the level of psychology, uh, human beings are entirely deterministic machines, then that would indeed uh, put pressure on my defense of free will. Yeah. Hmm. Well, you call your, your view compatibilist libertarianism. So maybe this is a good segue to when you were talking about the different levels. Now we can talk about terminology. So in previous seasons, we've defined these terms in such a way that compatibilist libertarian sounds like a contradiction. Uh, one component of libertarianism is the thesis of incompatibilism. So how do we use what you've been saying so far to describe how one could be a compatibilist libertarian? Yes, so I, uh, I I totally take your point that uh, at, at first sight, uh, this um, label sounds like a contradiction in, in terms. So I need to unpack the label a little bit in order to explain why I nonetheless think it's a, it's a good label and a, and a justified one for, for the position that, that I'm defending here. Um, so um, uh, first of all, I want to emphasize that there is an important sense in which um, my account of free will has a libertarian structure. So my account of free will is libertarian in the sense that it says that free will requires alternative possibilities for choice um, uh, and that it requires uh, not just alternative possibilities in some kind of watered-down sense, for instance, uh, in a... Um, Uh, in a conditional sense, uh, mm -hmm. using certain counterfactuals, yeah. um, but it requires um, alternative possibilities in a modal sense uh, uh, that includes uh, indeterminism at the level of agency. So at the level of agency, I sort of agree with what the libertarians would say, namely free will requires a form of indeterminism. And it just so happens that I emphasize that what it requires is indeterminism at the level of agency rather than some version of indeterminism simpliciter. Um, if you had a, um, let's say, flat picture of the world, a sort of one-level ontology, um, then... Uh, Uh, indeterminism at the level of agency would presumably be the same as indeterminism simpliciter insofar as we wouldn't be yeah. distinguishing between different levels. And uh, then uh, if we had this flat picture, then uh, uh, we'd, uh, I mean, then my uh, account of free will would really look very, very similar to the, to the libertarian uh, one. Um, so, uh, so again, to, to recap, my account really does require indeterminism at the level of agency uh, as a prerequisite for free will, and that's a very much a libertarian um, feature. Um, so if we were to sort of somehow truncate this uh, 
hierarchy of levels that I uh, mentioned uh, and, and only focus on the level of agency alone and just ignore everything else, then I, I think the libertarians and I uh, would be likely to be uh, in agreement about mm -hmm. uh, the, the architecture of what free will requires. And so that's the libertarianism. Now, the compatibilist qualification in my in my label, compatibilist libertarianism, comes from the fact that um, uh, this version of uh, libertarianism that I defend, uh, according to which free will requires agential level indeterminism, is nonetheless compatible with um, determinism at the level of fundamental physics. Um, so that's the sort of sense in which my view also has a compatibilist uh, flavor. But the compatibilism is, an, is a kind of inter-level compatibilism. So you know, you've got a sort of libertarian picture at the level of agency, but I suggest that that's compatible with the deterministic uh, um, picture at the level of fundamental physics. So that's a kind of inter-level compatibility here. Uh, on the other hand, Uh, if we just focus uh, on um, uh, my theory from an intra-level perspective uh, and uh, you just um, consider the agential level alone, then uh, this account of free will has, uh, has very much a libertarian structure. And so if you put these two things together, um, we get the label uh, compatibilist uh, libertarianism. Thanks. Well, this is sort of a follow-up question to what you were just saying, but um, yours is obviously a novel and very interesting view of free will. Could you say a bit about what it has in common, if anything, with um, other views of free will that are out there? Yes, yeah. So the view obviously has a number of um, precursors, and um, one precursor um in particular, can be found in the work of Anthony Kenny. Um, uh, so back in the 1970s, uh, already he defended free will by invoking uh, a distinction between different levels, mm -hmm. namely what he called a physiological level on the one hand and then a psychological level on, on the other hand. And um, so I think he um, uh, very much recognized that this... Um, two-level architecture would uh, help us um, you know, reconcile free will with, with determinism. Um, uh, but um, this view, uh, for some reason, has been perhaps somewhat overlooked or underappreciated in the, in the free will uh, debate. Mm -hmm. It's nowhere near as influential as, as uh, many other compatibilist positions. Um, but also, I think he never quite uh, provided... Um, more precise, let's say, technical analysis mm -hmm. of how this, uh, you know, level picture would, would work mm -hmm. and how these levels um, hang together. Um, so uh, it, so I, I think it kind of left some important uh, questions open and uh, at the core of, of my account is a, um, a more formal analysis mm -hmm. of uh this uh, multi-level structure, including uh, the, the general point uh, that, you know, determinism um, and indeterminism uh, are very much level-specific um, phenomena. Um, so, yeah, so Kenny is really one precursor I'd, I'd like to, you know, mention and, and recognize uh, here. Yeah. Um, I mean, another precursor uh, can also be found in... Uh, 
uh, Dennett's works. Um, uh, so, uh, you know, Dennett, um, especially in this uh, uh, book, Freedom Evolves, um, uh, also defended the idea that, you know, even if you've got um, determinism in the underlying physical system, uh, this doesn't uh, render everything um, inevitable uh, at the level of, of, of agency. Mm-hmm, right. So then it introduces this notion of, uh, of evitability. Uh, so, uh, you know, things can be um, evitable uh, for agents or decision makers, uh, even if you've got some underlying deterministic dynamics. Um, yeah. um, but I, I think um, there was a sense in which perhaps uh, you know, while presenting this in a sort of very um, a- attractive and imaginative uh, and, and way, it's perhaps not been pinpointed fully precisely what what he meant there. And so there was a time when I um, uh, because I obviously got quite very much inspired by by Dennett's uh, writings, as many people have been inspired mm-hmm. by by Dennett. And there was a time, perhaps you know, ten years ago or, or, or longer. Um, when I thought that um, I was sort of elaborating a version of of, of Dennett's view, um, but then I had discussions with uh, people, and each time I tried to uh, um, explain what I then took to be my kind of reconstruction of of, of Dennett's view, um, people pointed out to me that that couldn't really be what Dennett meant, mm-hmm. or that, uh, or they kind of maybe. Um, uh, projected onto my account various other aspects of Dennett's views that I that, that I didn't share or perhaps Dennett subtly changed his position from one uh, place to, to another. Right. And so for this reason, I, I thought that, you know, while, uh, you know, very much acknowledging my kind of intellectual debt to, to, to Dennett's works, um, it would be best to just develop this whole picture in a, in a separate independent and, and freestanding mm-hmm. um, way. Mm-hmm. But, but, you know, clearly this is a, an, another um, a precursor. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, you, and you'll find, uh, I mean, at the end of the day, I suppose even the entire Kantian tradition uh, uh, in which, um, uh, you know, physical phenomena on the one hand uh, and, and agential ones uh, uh, are distinguished from uh, from from one another, and um, so you know I'd also be you know, perfectly um, happy to uh, place uh, my account of free will uh, in the context of of that uh, tradition. Yeah, yeah, great, very interesting. So, what would be you defended this view for a few years now? What would be the objection that pops up when you're defending the view that keeps you up at night? Well, does it keep me up at night? But anyway, I mentioned <laughs> I mentioned an objection that uh, that that comes up again and again. So maybe that's the objection that should keep me keep me up at yeah. night. Um, so um, a, a very common objection um, uh, is that um, uh, I only managed to establish um, uh, a form of. Um, alternative possibilities uh, in an epistemic sense, but not really in an ontic uh, sense. Yeah. So the objection basically says uh, it may very well be true that um, determinism at the level of fundamental physics uh, can coexist with unpredictability at the level of agency or at some other higher level, uh, simply because um 
when we engage in um, higher level um, description, um, we uh, lack complete information about the detailed underlying physical microstate. Um, and uh, it is in light of this incomplete information um, about the microstate that we are then not able to um, you know, fully predict the trajectory of the, of the world, thereby getting um, the illusion of uh, alternative possibilities, but it's okay. nothing more than that. Mm-hmm. So in short, this objection would say um, what I call agential level indeterminism is at, is at best some form of epistemic unpredictability, but it's not a genuine form mm-hmm. of, of, of indeterminism. And so um, to respond to that objection, I need to argue uh, that we should um, interpret uh, higher level indeterminism um, ontically and not just um, epistemically. Um, And my my general strategy for um, making this point um, is uh, to... um, in effect, endorse um, and what I uh, is, in, is to endorse a naturalistic approach to ontology um, quite generally. So I think that um, in any given domain of inquiry, um, we should um, take uh, the descriptions given to us by, by our best scientific theories in that domain um, at face value. I mean, assuming at least those theories are. Um, uh, you know, empirically adequate, uh, sufficiently mature, and there are no uh, other strong reasons that speak against taking those um, theories seriously. Right. So if our best scientific theories of, um, let's say, um, biology say, um, you know, there truly are organisms, or we make reference to, to organisms, for instance, or make reference to um, genetic inheritance or phenomena such as random mutation or whatever it might be, then we should take that at face value. Or likewise, whenever our um, best theories in the social sciences uh, commit us to postulating that there are certain um, institutions, let's say, or organizations Mm -hmm. that um, themselves play a causal role in the world, then once again, we should take this at at, at face value. And um, in in line with this naturalistic approach to ontology, I think that um, when our best scientific theories of a particular domain um, uh, suggest that the phenomena in that domain um, display an indeterministic dynamics, um, then we should also take that at face value and be realists about um, um, this postulated domain-specific um, indeterminism. Um, and now I, um, I think there are um, very good reasons to conclude that our best theories of um, decision-making um, uh, actually presuppose uh, agential-level indeterminism insofar as postulating non-singleton option sets is uh, absolutely essential for the activity of intentional explanation. Um, I'm also inclined to take that uh, at at, at face Mm. value and then be realist about the the, um, agential indeterminism uh, that is 
posited by our best uh, scientific theories of, of, of agency and, and decision-making. Um, and so that's the reason why I would um, push for an ontic interpretation of the appropriate higher-level indeterminism and not merely an epistemic one. And that's why at the end of the day, um, I'm not moved by the objection, even though, of course, I understand that, that um, yeah. thought that uh, is behind that objection. Mm-hmm. I have a quick follow-up thought on that. So if there's real indeterminacy, ontic, not just epistemic alternative possibilities at the level of agency, do you think that that makes the view vulnerable to the luck objection to libertarianism? We interviewed Al Mealy about the problem of luck for our first season. I think he's actually raised this point in connection with your view before. I was just curious what you think about that. Yes, so um, insofar as my account of free will is similar to other libertarian accounts, at least uh, when we uh, restrict our attention to the level of agency Mm -hmm. alone, it's also vulnerable to some similar objections. So I I do agree that in principle, my view also faces this this luck objection and, um, uh, and I need to be able to say something systematic in response to that uh, objection. I mean, in my book, I um, have a discussion of of, uh, of that. Mm-hmm. And I mean, just to sort of cut a long story th- short, um, I think um, that two things can be simultaneously uh, true. It can be the case that um, uh, I have um, several different uh, options ahead of me as an agent between which I as an agent could could choose so I have a so I have multiple agential possibilities ahead mm-hmm. of me um, and then I choose one of these options um, and it let's let's suppose I'm at least approximately rational in this context mm-hmm. so it so happens that I really do choose the option that I um, intentionally in, endorse which is in line with my um, beliefs, desires, intentions, and, and, and so on. Um, now, in this, in this case, um, the following things can be true at the same time. It can be true that um, uh, I chose this particular option. Um, my mental state also was the difference-making cause of that choice. Moreover, that choice is um, rationalized by my underlying intentional states. And so in that sense, there is something very non-arbitrary about that choice. And yet it was agentially possible for me to act um, otherwise. Uh, And since all of this can be simultaneously true, um, I suggest that um, the mere fact that I had alternative possibilities does not render... Um, my choice merely a matter of luck or randomization at at all. So perhaps, I mean, my view might be a little bit better placed even to answer that uh, luck objection than traditional libertarian views, at least some traditional libertarian views, especially the kinds of libertarian views that draw on... um, uh, phenomena such as quantum randomness uh, yeah. in order to mm-hmm. introduce um, uh, indeterminism uh, in, into the world, they might be somewhat more vulnerable to this objection. Yeah. I mean, Robert Kane has a sophisticated response to that objection from his perspective, which is, you know, a very, very clever uh, mm-hmm. re- response. But it's not the response that uh, that that I myself uh, would, would endorse. Right. But um, 
But insofar as the source of the indeterminism um, that is uh, involved in free will on my picture is, is nothing like quantum randomness or nothing like randomness at all, but the source is rather option availability uh, for, for an intentional agent, yeah. I actually think there is a sense in which my view is less vulnerable to this, uh, this object, objection than, than other views. Yeah. Um, but I should also note that um, uh, I... I developed a slightly more elaborate version of that response in a um, joint uh, paper on alternative possibilities and intentional endorsement that I wrote with Vlodek Rabinovitz, in which um, you know, we present a, a, a slightly more detailed uh, version of the set of points that I just very quickly summarized here. Yeah. Interesting. Well, thanks for letting me ask that follow-up yeah. question. <laughs> Well, the, this this whole season of the Free Will Show has been about free will and science, and we've been asking everybody that we interview to make a prediction. So we were wondering if you would be willing to make a prediction of where you think that there's going to be interesting developments or areas of science that would be most fruitful for philosophers interested in free will to explore. Yeah, so, um, I mean, personally, I think that um, uh, the question of how exactly um, uh, our scientific theories of agency and decision-making rely upon certain uh, presuppositions of indeterminism mm. and, and how mm -hmm. precisely uh, this can be spelled out. I, I, I personally think that those are uh, some very interesting questions uh, at the overlap between the free will debate on the one hand and the relevant special sciences on, on the other hand. Um, I mean, I'm, um, I'm actually very, um, uh, very intrigued uh, by um, a, a metaphysical theory that um, uh, Helen Stewart mm -hmm. uh, has uh, developed and uh, defended uh, in, in recent years, uh, which um, uh, I, I think she calls agency incompatibilism. Yeah. Uh, this is the view that... Um, uh, there's not just an incompatibility between free will and determinism, but there is an incompatibility between agency itself mm -hmm. and, and, and indeterminism. Um, and uh, now, um, uh, and I'm, I'm kind of quite sympathetic to uh, Stuart's uh, view. I think, though, um, she develops this view more in the spirit of, um, of a classic libertarian approach uh, with a maybe one level uh, on, on ontology. I don't know whether she put it exactly in, in those terms, mm -hmm. but uh, the indeterminism that uh, Stuart takes to be required for agency is indeterminism simpliciter. And mm -hmm. uh, I, I assume this would also require indeterminism within the fundamental physical laws of, of nature. Right. Um, uh, whereas, uh, you know, I would perhaps... Uh, uh, be inclined to defend a version of agency incompatibilism as well, but a, a slightly different version of it, namely one that says that um, intentional agency, at least of a non-trivial sort, uh, is um, incompatible with uh, with determinism at the level of agency. Um, so it's agential indeterminism that is a prerequisite for agency, but not a physical um, yeah. in, indeterminism. Interesting. Um, um, but I, I mean, I think uh, 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 this whole debate around agency 
incompatibilism raises some some very interesting questions um, for, um, in fact, all of the sciences that uh, address the phenomenon of of agency, uh, namely the question of um, uh, how, according to these sciences, the phenomenon of agency uh, fits into the rest of the world um, and which particular metaphysical assumptions, if any, we need to make uh, in, in order for agency to, um, uh, to, to be possible. Um, uh, and, uh, yeah, and I mean, if, if I'm right, then um, the question of whether the fundamental laws of nature are deterministic or indeterministic is sort of orthogonal to any issue about agency, but uh, whether agential indeterminism is true is, is really very much at the, at the heart of the matter. Yeah. And so my hypothesis is that um, uh, at least on a sort of realist understanding, our best theories of, of, of agency do indeed presuppose agential indeterminism, but that's something that, you know, I'd also, uh, you know, like to explore uh, uh, further from a, from the relevant special science perspective. And I, you know, very much welcome exploration uh, of it. And maybe related to this, um, there's another area of uh, the um, relevant sciences that uh, is is also somewhat underexplored. I think I mentioned this already at the beginning. I mean, while there is a vast body of work in the area of decision theory, and not just um, normative decision theory, but also decision theory as a descriptive and explanatory exercise, so that's decision theory of the sort that is being used in, uh, in many of the social sciences. Mm-hmm. We find that in economics, mm-hmm. we find it in... Uh, various branches of psychology, but also in other branches of um, of, of the social sciences, um, and uh, there's actually really uh, you know su- surprisingly little discussion of uh, what, if any, assumptions about free will uh, are being made when we engage in uh, decision theoretic modeling or in decision theoretic uh, ex- explanation. And uh, again, if 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 I'm right. Uh, realism about decision theory sort of presupposes a kind of realism about free will as well. But uh, I'd also like to see more exploration of, uh, of, of, of this uh, to, you know, either maybe uh, vindicate yeah. this, uh, this hypothesis or, or, or you know, perhaps um, uh, refute it. I mean, I'd also find, find it uh, uh, very exciting if someone could um, develop um, a sort of alternative competing uh, interpretation of decision theory that um, makes good philosophical sense of decision theory even as an explanatory exercise, and that is at least somewhat realist about decision theory, mm-hmm. but which does not uh, um, require any sort of assumption of free will and and alternative um, possibilities. Yeah. So I think there is really a, a big terrain of uh, open issues out there to be explored. Yeah. Cool. Nice. Well, thanks again so much for joining us, Christian. Uh, where can listeners who are interested in your work go to follow what you're working on? Well, they could go to my uh, webpage, uh, which is at uh, christianlist.net. Um, uh, but uh, more broadly, I mean, I myself am not on, on social media, but uh, people interested uh, in, uh, in our center here in Munich, the Munich Center for Mathematical Philosophy, could uh 
follow the MCMP on, on Twitter and uh, see uh, the announcements of our various uh, activities here in Munich. Cool. Great. Yeah. Thanks again for joining us, Christian. Thanks so much for having me. Yeah. This concludes our season on free will and science. Join us in the winter and spring of 2022 for interviews with early career scholars who specialize in free will. Unlike earlier seasons, we won't have a single theme for the next set of episodes. Instead, we'll ask these early scholars to talk about whatever they happen to be working on, and it should be a lot of fun. 